The great thing about having a team of people who preach is I can take the Sunday off when uh, I have graduation. So I'm excited that uh, Roman is here to start us in this series. Thank you, Rick. So bear with me this morning. I've had a little bit of a cold. What some of you may or may not know is that I'm also a musician and a singer. And so uh, I have a kind of a high voice. So this morning I sounded like Johnny Cash as we were singing. And that's always cool to hit those low notes that I normally can't hit. Uh, so as we get started this morning, uh, so we ask you guys to give us your big questions. And that's the sermon series we're in uh, as we start today. And we ask you to, to give us things that you wonder about. So things you wonder about concerning faith, uh, Christianity, the Bible. And uh, you guys delivered some fantastic questions. And frankly, it was difficult to, to figure out which ones to address over the next couple of weeks. Um, we did notice a trend. Uh, heaven and things regarding heaven seem to be a hot topic. Uh, but we want to save those questions until uh, late October, uh, early November, because we're going to be doing a series on heaven uh, entitled a, a Better Country. So stay tuned for that. Uh, some of the questions dealt with God's will, dealt with suffering, uh, dealt with pain. Uh, and, and those are such ever-present issues at any time. Uh, within any given community that we really want to try to address those at some point every year, and we're going to be covering those uh, later this year as well. Some of the questions dealt with issues we recently preached on, so we decided to, to let those lie fallow for a little bit. But there was one question we received that has historically spilled a ton of ink and a lot of blood and could fill up libraries of books written on the topic. And I'm going to give you the question and then I'm going to give you my thoughts on why this question bothers so many people before we actually get into it today. So the question is, why was the, the holy massacre, why is it overlooked as not such a big deal? It really bothers me that God said there would be no prisoners to kill women and children to wipe them out. Now that is the question unedited, unedited and in, as exactly as it was asked. Uh, now, this isn't to be confused with the massacre of the innocents, which is referenced in Matthew chapter 2 with Herod the, the Great when he ordered the execution of all the young males uh, in the vicinity of Bethlehem. The question being asked today is in particular reference to God's instruction to kill women and children and take no prisoner. So by that definition, it also excludes the crusades of the medieval period, which were church-sanctioned campaigns at the time around multiple controversies that we're not going to get into today. But today's question is asking very specifically about God's decision and instructions concerning prisoners of war, specifically women and children, of a particular event within a particular text of Scripture itself. So why is that important? Because at the very least, God's compassion is called into question and at the very most, God's moral authority is called into question. So I'm not picking on whoever asked the question because it's a great question. Why is it this holy massacre? Why is it overlooked as not such a big deal? And then it's followed by a very honest statement. It really bothers me that God said. And that could be its own sermon series. Things God said that really bother me. 
If you never question or wrestle with Scripture, if Scripture never bothers you or keeps you up at night or rubs you the wrong way, then you're either a living saint, already perfected in the faith, or you're very unfamiliar with with the text because Scripture draws lines. It, It makes borders. It causes readers to make decisions and choose paths. It both challenges and judges the reader. The Bible judges us, not vice versa. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And notice the relationship between the heart and the word. The word examines, the heart is being examined. Does that make sense? So for believers to discount whole sections of Scripture for any reason is to reverse this process. We then become the examiners, and then the Word must submit to our superior insight. So what the question's really concerned with is in regard to the nature and disposition of God. God the Father, specifically, concerning holy war, or rather, let's call it Yahweh war, since holy war has been hijacked by religious ideology. There's several places in Scripture where Yahweh war and and violence and destruction are talked about. But our primary Scripture reference this morning comes from Deuteronomy 7. So hang with me and let's give this this Scripture its due diligence. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 5 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are about to enter and occupy, and he clears away many nations before you, and he lists all the ites, Seven nations mightier and more numerous than you. And the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them. Then you must utterly destroy them. Make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For that would turn away your children from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you. And he would destroy you quickly. But this is how you must deal with them. Break down their altars, smash their pillars, hew down their sacred poles, and burn their idols with fire. Does that make you uncomfortable at all? It should. It should. Especially all the violence that we see in this text. At first glance, the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament seem so other and so outside of Christ's character in the New Testament. This idea that God called Israel to completely destroy people, women, children, animals, land, etc., it's troublesome. It's troublesome to us. How do we reconcile it with the loving, merciful God that we see in Christ in the New Testament? So I want to take a closer look, and I, I want us to use our Framework five statements that I think will help us as we address the issues of of Yahweh war. And I base these statements from Matthew Schlimm's work on the Old Testament. Now, too often we bring assumptions to Scripture that are mistaken, and we need to correct some of them. So these are some of the mistaken premises that we bring to Scripture. Christians should not imitate every biblical character's actions, okay? Sometimes we think we should. But we shouldn't imitate every biblical character's action. 
Samson's womanizing and arrogance. That's not a character we should imitate. Uh, David's adultery. There's a good one not to imitate. Uh, Noah's drunkenness after he gets off the ark. Can't say I blame him with all the animals, but nevertheless shouldn't imitate Noah's drunkenness. Gideon's fear. Again, nothing to imitate. Peter's denial in the New Testament or, or Martha's worry. So we see these great heroes of the faith, but they're all flawed. Only God and Christ are not. Our second mistake in premise is Christians should not imitate all of God the Father's actions. Now you might say, hold up, not imitate God, not imitate all of God's actions. That's a mistaken premise to imitate God's actions because God is holy and just. He starts with the place of complete holiness and complete justice. Are you completely holy and just? Is that an action that we should imitate? Yes, I should imitate God's justice. But he's perfect in his justice and I'm not. So it's a mistake that we should imitate all of God the Father's actions. It's one thing to say that God has the right to execute judgment on people, but it's something different to say that we have the same right through violence. That's how many wars throughout our histories have been justified. But we're fallen creatures without all the knowledge, and we have suspect motives at times. And we're limited severely when it comes to this issue. Christ, however, is our moral example to emulate. Thirdly, Christians should not apply individual text taken out of context directly to their lives. So here's some text. Some texts just don't apply to you in your life. Some events that are in Scripture are one-time events. Some instructions or events were for particular people groups and not for everyone to imitate. Creation, one-time event. The fall of man, one-time event. The great flood, a one-time event. The Tower of Babel was a one-time event. Lot's wife turned to salt, one-time event. The time the sun, the sun stood still, that was a one-time event. One time God asked a shepherd boy to defeat a giant with a sling. So the conquest of Canaan, which we'll talk about today, as a unique and limited historical event, was never meant to become a model for how all future generations were to behave toward their enemies. This was a specific time and a specific event. Number four, Christians should not read every individual passage in isolation from other passages. That's a great way to get yourself in trouble. It's a great way to split a church. It's a great way to start a new denomination. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sure. The, 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 the possibilities are endless with God. The key word is can. Can is not the same word as, as, as should or will. You can try putting on way too much weight on a barbell. You can end up with it on your neck. But I thought I could do all things through Christ. But listen, there's always going to be a Samson. God has and does give supernatural strength. He's done it in the past, he'll do it in the future. But just because God can bestow that kind of power doesn't mean it's always going to be given. So again, we come, to the, we come with these mistaken premises sometimes to Scripture. Number five, Christians do not have answers to every question raised by disturbing text, nor 
should we? Uh, We don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. So as we approach Scripture, we approach with a spirit of humility, a spirit that recognizes that we're not God and some things we'll never understand. Some things will remain a mystery because there is no faith without mystery. And Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith it's impossible to please God. For whoever would approach him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And this entire chapter of Hebrews 11 is looking back at the Old Testament and the heroes of faith. People that trusted God without seeing. But I want to address and spend a little time addressing violence and specifically the issue of harem. Now, harem is the Hebrew term used that's translated to utterly destroy them. And if we remember the story of the nation of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And then they were freed by God through Moses, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years, and now they're called to go into the land of Canaan. And Moses gives them the text I read earlier from Deuteronomy. And they go into the land, they're, completely, they're to completely destroy the nations that are there, the Canaanites specifically, to have no mercy on them and to, to completely destroy them. Why would God do that? Well, let me give you some observations that might shed some more light on the issue. First, God doesn't do this lightly. This isn't just any other nation that's just in the way of God. In fact, God has been gracious to them, and he's given them about 430 years to repent. And in fact, God tells us that all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, he says, Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. And after four generations... Your descendants will return here to this land. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. So God gives them 400 years to repent. But at the end of that 400 plus years, God in effect says, now is your time of judgment. They've had plenty of time, but they wouldn't repent. They'd passed a point of no return. We speak of God being slow to anger, and I would say 400 years is pretty slow to anger. Would we be that gracious? Before we even point a finger at God, would we be that gracious? These Amorites, who were a people group of the Canaanites, were not innocent bystanders. They were a violent and oppressive culture that served violent and oppressive gods. And these gods relished in incest and adultery and temple sex and bestiality and homosexual acts and child sacrifice. And they believed the more sex you had, the more rain and more blessing you would have. But this was violent sex with disregard for human rights. The Canaanite gods were bloodthirsty. And let me quote an archaeologist, William Arbright, that describes the Canaanite god Anath 
in a gory massacre. The blood was so deep that she waded in, in it up to her knees, nay, up to her neck. Under her feet were human heads. Above her human hands flew like locusts. In her sensuous delight, she decorated herself with suspended heads while she attached hands to her girdle. Her joy at the butchery is described in even more sadistic language. Her liver swelled with laughter. Her heart was full of joy. The liver of Anath was full of exultation. Afterwards, Anath was satisfied and washed her hands in human gore before proceeding to other occupations. Awesome culture. This was their worldview. This was the way their culture lived. And God said, it's enough. It's enough. And their time of idolatry and their influence had to stop. And God didn't want the Israelites to have anything to do with this culture that glorified violent and oppressive sex and violent and oppressive worldview that glorified destruction and death. God has done that throughout history. The Canaanites were the only ones singled out for destruction. We're not the only ones singled out for destruction. Other nations were destroyed when they finally went too far. But here's the thing. We don't get to decide when a nation's gone too far. That's God's decision at his discretion. And we shouldn't emulate God on this front. God had given them 400 years to repent, and they did not. So the consequences was their destruction. And Moses told them, don't get involved with these people. Don't marry them. And he also told them to do four things. He said to tear down their altars, to smash their pillars, to cut down their sacred poles, and to burn their idols in fire. This destruction of the Canaanites would ensure that Israel wouldn't be tempted to practice idolatry. It also reminded the people of Israel that they weren't going to war to get rich and for personal gain. They were to destroy all the property. So there was not the spoils of war. So there was no motive. They're not going to get the goods. It also reminded the Israelites that it was God who wins the war. It wasn't because of their military strength. And as I just said, the spoils of war go to God. They don't get them because they didn't earn them. They're a sacrifice to God. In fact, if we look at how Israel's supposed to live, they weren't even supposed to have a standing army. The soldiers weren't paid for their service, and they couldn't take plunder. And it was only a prophet that was actually authorized to call for war. The king or the priest or tribal leaders couldn't at the drop of a hat or at their whim decide we're going to war. A prophet had to declare that. And as I mentioned before, I believe this was to be a one-time event only in the nation of Israel. They weren't supposed to completely destroy the other nations around them, but to make peace with them. When you read the text, they're supposed to make peace with these other nations if they could. So, so back to the Deuteronomy text. Some have argued that the Harem text, this utter destruction, was never meant to be taken literally in its application, but it, but it was to serve as a picture of Israel's call to absolute commitment to their God, Yahweh, in other words. 
So some say that it's a rhetorical text due to the way that it's written in the Hebrew language and that it shouldn't be actually taken literally. Now, I wish I had time to, to flesh that out and spend a lot of time there. But let me give you just a couple of, cu- of, of clues to this. Number one, the text mentions seven nations in Canaan that they were to destroy. But there's more than seven nations in Canaan. But seven in the Hebrew culture represents completeness. So there's one clue. And secondly, right after God says to completely destroy them, he tells them not to marry any of them. Well, if they had completely destroyed them, there would be no need to talk about marriage. So if you read Harim, total destruction in this light, Israel's supposed to absolutely remove this culture from their use, to not treat it lightly, or to even to even go so far as to destroy the objects that symbolize these people. But the purpose of total destruction of a culture is to make sure that your loyalty stays pure to God and all that he's commanded you. And I wish I had more time again to flush out that idea. But let me finish by addressing the issue of violence as a whole and God's divine anger specifically. So often people tell me that the God of the Old Testament is about wrath and about killing and about destruction and that the New Testament is all about grace and love. And people who tell me that have obviously not spent much time reading either of the Testaments because violence isn't just an Old Testament issue. Violence is throughout the New Testament as well. The Bible speaks of violence so much because it's an issue of humanity. It's it's a human heart issue. And God's wrath is seen in both Old and New Testament. The Old Testament has some of the most beautiful texts that speaks of God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and love. And Jesus oftentimes speaks of doom and destruction like an Old Testament prophet. Jesus talks about the wrath that is to come. We need to understand that God's wrath isn't human. It comes and it stems from God's desire for justice and freedom. God is repulsed by evil and the evil that we do. And because God is good, he wants us to stop evil and prevent it from overcoming the world. This image of God as a wrathful or destructive It captures this idea. But unlike humans, God gets angry for the right reasons. God's anger is righteous. It's for our benefit and for our salvation. It should jolt us out of our complacency and call us to a more faithful following of God. Think think rescue and recovery. The image of A wrathful God is tempered by his other divine attributes. God is patient, 400 years worth of patience. God is loving. He disciplines, he corrects, he teaches us when we do wrong. But for our benefit and to draw us closer. So back to Canaan and its destruction. When Joshua goes into the promised land, what's the first story that we have? 
the story of the spies going into Jericho. And what do they encounter? Rahab. Now, this sip of water brought to you by Palace Coffee. <laughs> Let me just give you a brief story of, of Rahab. So Rahab's a prostitute. She's living in a land that Israel's about to destroy, and they're going in to spy out the land, and they go to this prostitute's house, and they get all this information, okay? In return, she's not to be destroyed. And they said, you know, because you've helped us, we're not gonna, we're gonna make sure that you're not destroyed. But here's the deal, you have to hang a, a scarlet rope out the window so that we know where you're at. And then you're not going to be destroyed. Now hold up. I thought God just said destroy everybody. But always in God's destruction, there's a place for forgiveness. There's a place for redemption. Always. Even throughout the Old Testament, we see this. What about when the children of Israel leave Egypt and they're supposed to paint the blood over the doorpost of the houses? Everybody who paints the blood over the doorpost of the house, their children, the firstborn son, is spared. Guess what? Some of the Egyptians do it as well. Never talked about. But everyone, it doesn't just specify. It's everyone that paints the blood over the door in honor and will truly worship and follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's always a place for God's redemption. There's always a place for his wrath if we don't follow. And so when we see they return to destroy this city of Jericho and Rahab is spared. And then we actually see Rahab in the lineage of Christ later on. We see in God's call for holiness that he gives grace to Rahab because she places herself under the authority of God. God's call for harem or utter destruction is more about eliciting devotion toward him rather than destruction and separation from him. So where does that leave us today? To take seriously this call, this ministry that we have to live holy lives. Lives separate from the culture around us. God desires our destruction. He does not desire our destruction, but, but greater, he desires our devotion. Submit, we should submit ourselves to God this day in all that we do and say. Let's pray.